Hello, people of the internet. Pastor Wade Chan with Indelible Grace Church here. This Sunday School class recording is going to be a little bit different from the others because we didn't start recording the lesson until halfway through the class time. And that means that I'm re-recording the lesson in my little studio here, which is just me sitting at my desk all alone. And this recording will eventually seek into the portion of the class that was recorded. So I do apologize for uh, this inconsistency. Uh, but here we go. Follow along with the Sunday School document handout, which you can download from the Sunday School page on the IGC website. Today we are going to go through the major prophets. And uh, just to get us to think about prophets, uh, if you guys have ever been to a concert or a um, sporting events with people holding up signs saying turn or burn or go to hell or uh, these types of people yelling at people on the street, the passerbys. Um, this is sometimes the image that we get of prophets. We, we think of the crazy, crazy picket sign people that are just condemning everyone. And uh, this is not what a prophet is. Uh, so before we go through the, the six major prophets uh, that I have on the handouts, let me just talk a little bit about what the prophets are in the Old Testament and um, their function and how God used them. So uh, the prophets, their message was aimed at the covenant people of God and they called the covenant people of God to faithfully obey God. They were telling them that they had made mistakes, that they had rebelled against God, that they had to turn back, they had to repent and worship God and God alone. And God's people, as they as their spiritual life disintegrated, they started to presume upon the grace of God and they just took for granted the fact that God was present, that God was active, that God was uh, angry at their sin. And uh, the, the theologians, they sometimes refer to the prophets as the covenant enforcers. And we're referring to the covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant uh, specifically, in which God said, if you keep my commandments, if you obey them, you will be blessed. But if you don't, you will be cursed. And the prophet's job is to speak to the people of God. And they're to enforce those who are called to live in light of the covenant. So think of them as perhaps cops telling the, the people of God what they should be doing. They are the ones that tell the people of God that perhaps they've made mistakes. Perhaps they have rebelled and they need to turn back. During the time of the rebellion, the, the time that the prophets were speaking into the Israelites, they were steeped in idolatry. They were steeped in syncretism, which was, which was integrating the, the pagan practices of the surrounding nations and, and, and putting that together with the worship of the true God, Yahweh. And, uh, they were, they were taking part in, in, in social injustice. So as we look through the history of the Israelites, we see repeatedly that they are participating in idolatry, that they are participating in religious syncretism, that they are 
neglecting their duty to carry out justice. The poor are not taken care of. The hungry are not fed. And the prophets speak to these failures of God's people to maintain the covenant. So as we go through the prophetic books, this week we're going through the major prophets. Next week, Harry is going to speak on the minor prophets. As we go through these books, we're going to see that there are four things, or actually five things, that are unique to, not unique, but that are uh, characteristics of each of the major books. So the first is the recitation recitation of the history of redemption. This was a reminder to God's people that they were, um, that of who God was. So he was a king to them. He was a father to them, that he was holy. So the first mark of a prophetic book was a telling of who God was, of who God was. The second mark of a prophetic book was a proclamation of Israel's covenant obligations. Again, the Mosaic covenant. The prophets reminded God's people of their covenant relationship with God. So if the first mark of a prophetic book was who God was, the second mark was who the people were, their identity in light of the covenant. The third mark was a statement of covenant indictments. So this is when the prophets, they enumerated Israel, Israel's sins. They, they were telling them, this is what you have done wrong. These are the ways in which you're failing. These are the ways in which you're, you're rebelling against God. A fourth, which is a declaration of God's covenant curse upon Israel. So the prophets were telling Israel that if they refused to do God's will, that there would be a curse put upon them, just as he had promised and the majority of the prophetic books were were written in the uh, post in, during to the Israelites during the exile as well as post exile, and this was a promise to God's people that if they were faithful, that they would they would be blessed by God. So it was a statement and encouragement to them to remain faithful to the covenants. So as we look through all the books. We, we don't we don't see the prophets as merely hellfire and brimstone preachers. We don't see them merely as people that were trying to scare the people of God, trying to make them feel guilty. But they were givers of the promise of God. And as they were speaking, they were making not prophetic predictions, but divine promises. And they're telling God's people, that God will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises. And this is meant as an encouragement to you to live out your obligations to the covenants. So they spoke of the future to encourage the people in the presence. So this is uh, our introduction to the major prophets. And uh, before we hit Isaiah, let me just talk through um, the the uh, characteristics of the books that we're going to talk through today. The first, and you'll see this on your sheet in the upper left-hand corner, the major prophets, they were set in the context of historical events. So we need to remember that in the history of Israel, we need to understand that they were given the promise 
first the Abrahamic promise. And what was the promise? It was that God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. And then after that came the the, the major covenant that we're going to focus on today is the David covenant, the Davidic covenant in which God promised that there would come from the line of David a king that would rule all nations and his throne would be established forever. And the Israelites, to remind us of what was going on, they were given these covenants, but the Israelites, they had they had gone through their history asking for kings and seeing their kings fail time and time again. And we see that uh, first there's a monarchy in which all of Israel is united, and then there is the, the divided kingdom, the divided kingdom comprised of Judah and Israel. And then we, we see in history that it was Israel that fell first in 722 BC. And then Judah eventually fell in 586 BC. So the prophets are speaking to those who are in exile, set in this historical events. And another characteristic of all these books that we're going to go through today, uh, Judgment and Hope. All of these books contain many, many references to God's judgment upon his people. But they also contain many, many notes of hope, something for God's people to grasp onto. And we'll talk towards the end of the lesson about the near future and the ultimate future. But in a nutshell, what we're, what we're referring to is that these books are speaking to a specific event in the near future for the Israelites. But this is the penultimate message to God's people. There is an ultimate coming of the Lord. There is an ultimate future that these books speak of. So these are the characteristics of the books, of all the books that we're going to go through today. So our first is the introduction to Isaiah. If you'll follow along on your sheets, the major prophet book of Isaiah. Isaiah's ministry begins with his his encounter with God. So there's this really famous scene in Isaiah chapter 6 in which Isaiah stands before God and he's confronted with the holiness of God. And what does Isaiah do? He falls to his knees. He's broken. He is crushed by God's presence because here is a mere man, a mortal who's face to face with the awesome overwhelming holiness of the God of the universe. And Isaiah responds by repenting. He says, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people who are unclean. This was his first response to God's holiness. And what does he say afterwards? There is this response in which Isaiah tells God, here am I, send me, here am I, send me. I have seen who you are. So we see here, we see this first bullet point on the sheet that Isaiah sees the characteristic, the character of God. And we'll see not only in Isaiah 6, speaking of God's holiness, but throughout the book, the unique characteristics of God. There's there's a portion in, in a, the latter half of Isaiah in which God tells his people, to whom will you compare me? And he lists out all these other gods, all these other idols, 
who are laughable, who are, who are weak, who have no power, who have no influence compared to God. And God says, to whom will you compare me? There is no other God beside me. No other idol that you form can stand against me. And God's character runs throughout the book. And this is the starting point for how we relate to God. If we're ever to see his love, if we're ever to experience his love or his holiness or his anger or his jealousy or his kindness or compassion, it's not something that you can just write off. You can't be flippant when you come face to face with God. And this was Isaiah's response. Here am I, send me. And from there, Isaiah, he speaks to the people of God. And Isaiah speaks, when he speaks to God's people, of judgment and rescue. So, as as we see in the book, the book is split into two main portions. There is uh, Isaiah chapters Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, and this comprises the first half of the book. And then there is chapters 40 through 66. So the first half speaks of the threat to Assyria, the threat from Assyria to God's people. And then 40 to 66, it's the return from Babylon. So there is Isaiah speaking to the exiles and also speaking of, to the post-exilic contingent of God's people. So as we see this, we'll see that there is the promise of a new exodus, a new uh, return from exile. And, I, and Isaiah, he speaks of a new creation and he speaks of a final atonement for Israel's sins. And he, he, Isaiah, he portrays the destruction of Jerusalem and he also speaks of the promise of a new Jerusalem and a new creation. So Isaiah is speaking to a people who have turned away from God and they've broken the co- their covenant with God. And this is why they're in exile. And Israel, they, they go through the motions of religious life. They, they do the festivals. They do the religious rituals. But we see that we use this, Isaiah uses this really famous line. And Jesus actually quotes this line from Isaiah. He says that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah is indicting the people of God. You honor God. You do the right things. But your hearts are far from God. And we can't help but think of how we might be doing the same things. We might be going through the our, the motions of the religious life. We may be going to church. We may be going to community groups. We may be uh, participating in all the things that we're supposed to be participating in. But this isn't limited to the Old Testament. This is a problem that is in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Jesus spoke. He quoted this this line from Isaiah. And it's this, this, this uh, reality can be the same for us as well. We may honor God with our lips, but our hearts may be far for, from Him. And Isaiah is saying, this is a judgment that's going to come upon you if you do not change your hearts if god does not change your hearts judgment is going to fall upon you but there is so much hope in isaiah and uh we see in israel too and this is in the bulletin or in the in the document the sunday school document in israel too i'm going to read through 
uh, Israel chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, and it says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow from it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go to the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war from any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. To understand this prophecy, we need to understand the covenant that was made to Abraham. And also to David in the Davidic covenant, in the Mosaic covenant. I'm sorry, in the Abrahamic covenant. Isaiah is referring to the covenant that says that God's promise isn't meant only for the Gent- for the Israelites, not only for the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. This is why we see here in this in this passage that Israel doesn't or Isaiah doesn't speak only to Israel, but he speaks to the nations. To the nations. Look at verse two. All the nations shall flow to it, referring to the the mountain of the house of the Lord. Verse 3 says, Many people shall come. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. And in verse 4, here we see again this reference to all the nations. All the nations are going to come and worship with Israel. And this is a huge promise this is a huge promise and it's telling us that God is faithful to his covenant to our forefathers. That when he says that Abraham's descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. When he says that there's going to be a king, going to be a king that comes from the line of David in which every nation shall worship. This is Isaiah saying, yes, God is faithful to his promise. And where do we see this? How can this happen? How can this happen? The answer is the suffering servants. And we see this, uh, our third point, our, or this third bullet point in uh, our section in Isaiah, the suffering servants. So the suffering servant is a huge theme throughout the book of Isaiah. And we see that one of the most famous depictions of our Messiah, Jesus, in Isaiah 53, where it talks about who this is, who is this lamb led to the slaughter? Who is this servant of the Lord who is marred beyond all recognition? This is the one who is going to come to rescue us. This is the one that will pay for Israel's sins. This is the one that will take on the sacrifice that we could never take on ourselves. And this is Jesus. And because Jesus is paying for the sins of not only the Israelites, but of all of God's elect throughout all nations, throughout all generations. Because he's doing this, this is how Isaiah's prophecy can come to pass when it says that all nations will come to the house of the Lord. So we see in the in Isaiah that God's people will reside in Zion through the works of the suffering servants. 
and that all nations are included in Zion. So this is Isaiah, and we move on to the book of Jeremiah. And the the, the ministry of Jeremiah was, um, I think, a huge encouragement to us. So let's start with the first chapter of Jeremiah. And we don't see this in our handout, but um, let me just give you guys a little bit of background. Isaiah's, I'm sorry, Jeremiah's ministry starts with Jeremiah um, really questioning how God can call him to speak to the nations. And here uh, in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And here comes Jeremiah's objection. He says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. And God says to Jeremiah, Don't say that you're only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I commanded, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. And this is a huge encouragement to people like myself, to any one of us who has a message to speak. And that's for the Christian. This is all of us. All of us have friends. All of us have family. All of us have people in our sphere of influence who need to hear the gospel message. And we go... God, I am too weak. I don't have charisma. I don't have skills to speak. I don't have enough knowledge. I may be too young. I may be too old. But God says, it doesn't matter what your limitations are. What matters is what I've called you to do. My call on your life trumps every objection that you have. And the promise that he makes to Jeremiah, this assurance is the same that he has for us. When he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before we were ever, before we ever came on the scene, God says, I know what I'm going to do with you. I know what your life is going to speak to the nations. So do not say You cannot do it because it doesn't matter what you can't do. Your limitations are not enough to thwart the the will of the Lord. God says, what I'm calling you to do, this is what gives you the right to speak. And I'm the one that's going to do the work of, of speaking into the hearts of the people that you know. Now, Jeremiah's ministry, just because God had called him to do this, it was not easy. God, after he tells Jeremiah that this is what you're going to do, he tells him, oh, by the way, people aren't going to listen to you. So there, um, that's going to be your ministry. And we see here that Jeremiah, he takes on, he has such a, a tender heart. He's he's known as the weeping prophet. And in, in chapter 13 of Jeremiah, he recounts these times when he calls, when he weeps, because God's people, they're not listening to this message that he's speaking to them. So Jeremiah, he goes, he goes to speak, and he spoke in the places of worship where the religious leaders would hear his words. And throughout his ministry, he was an unpopular prophet. And there were times when he was 
full of doubt and he was overwhelmed with stress and sadness from the words that he had to, not only the words that he had to speak, but also just the fact that people were not listening to him, that their hearts were still so hardened. But yet he was faithful in his message. And he spoke. And the context was similar to Isaiah, that Israel had turned to other gods. And because of this, they were exiled to Babylon. But the promises of God remain. The promises of God remain. And one of the huge things, one of the huge themes throughout the book of Jeremiah is this idea of the new covenant. And we see here in Jeremiah 31, he writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And can you imagine just how good this news is to the Israelites? Time and time and time again, they failed. And because of this, they deserve judgment. They deserve to be judged for their constant failure to maintain the covenant. They constantly forget the goodness of God. They constantly forget who God is. They constantly forget their own identity. And their land is full of sin. And they've got it coming. They've got judgment coming for them. And can you imagine how encouraging, how much life this brings to a condemned people when God says, For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. How amazing is that? That God will forgive their iniquity. That he will not remember a single sin anymore. That this will not be held against them. But instead he says, I'm bringing a new covenant to you. One in which I am going to write a law into your heart. And you're going to love this law. You're going to live out of this law. And this is going to define your life. So this is a promise that we see in Jeremiah. And we see also in Jeremiah 33. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will, be dwell, will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. All right. So this is, in verse 15, we see, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Here we go, the Davidic covenant. God has not forgotten his promise to his people. And it says here, I, I love in verse um, in verse 16, it says, uh, the name by which you will be called, uh, the Lord is our righteousness. Not that our good works are our righteousness. Not that our, um, not that our repentful hearts is our righteousness. But the Lord is our righteousness. He's saying here that there needs to be a righteousness outside of yourself. So don't count on your own what you can do. Because if we look at the Old Testament, we see 
that repeatedly, over and over and over, God's people are given a command, and over and over and over, they fail, they mess up, they, they cannot keep God's law. And this is, it's not, it's not God giving them second chances and third chances and saying like, oh, look how merciful God is by giving you all these chances. This isn't the lesson that we're supposed to take away from the Old Testament. It's to say, this should be a lesson to you to show you that you can never, ever, ever keep my law. So there needs to be a righteousness that comes outside of yourself. You need, you need the Davidic covenant and you need me to fulfill the Davidic covenant. So we see in Hebrews 8, we see that God speaks of this new covenant. And I'm going to ask Jeff to read uh, Hebrews 8, please. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. All right, so what, in a nutshell, what this passage is saying is, this old covenant that was made to you... Um, it could not have been kept, but then in Hebrews 8, we see throughout the book of Hebrews 8, this really awesome book of the Bible, there's all the rituals, all the rules that were being kept, that wasn't enough. Someone else had to come along, and here's this new covenant, and God is saying, in Jeremiah, it's going to be hundreds of years before this happens, but a new covenant is coming. Okay? So that's the that's the book of Jeremiah. Any questions, comments? Alright, Lamentations. So, Lamentations is placed between another book, between Jeremiah and this other book, Ezekiel. And it's, it's, um, what it is, is it's kind of a poetic retelling of God's redemptive act in, in Israel's history. And it tells about their, it's, it speaks of their faults and of their failures. And, um, this is, this is, uh, both Jeremiah and we're going to talk through Ezekiel as well later, but um, they predict the destruction of of, Jeru- of Jerusalem because of the rebellion against God, and this happens. So, um, so Lamentations. This it's based on this word lament, which means uh, if you're lamenting something, it means you're really sad. There's grief because something has happened, and it's kind of an artsy. Like I, I think of the um, kind of the uh, really like disturbed, emotional like singer songwriter who like sings about all these terrible things like the first thing for me um that comes to mind is Kurt Cobain who was who who lived like in a very nihilistic mindset like nothing matters um everything I do is just for naught this is why this guy uh did drugs and alcohol because he wanted to escape from this pain but he I think um kids really resonated with his music because he gave voice to the things that they were feeling and then with art, you can listen to like I'm listening to uh, an album right now in my car. I've it's um I've been listening to the same album for about like six or seven days now, like multiple times a day, because whatever they're speaking about is I'm gonna think about it and ruminate on it, and I'm gonna keep on going back to this. And um, this is what music does. This is what poetry does. Is you you don't only talk about the sad event that happened, but you also talk about your own grief. You go. Oh, woe is me! Like things are so terrible for me. And lamentations is this this poet saying, "I'm going to circle around this grief. I'm going to think about it." And this is why lamentations is kind of like a dark name for a book. It's called lamentations. It's, it's if if we were to write a book, it's us saying like, "I'm going to write a book called Wade's really disturbing thoughts." And that's, <laughs> that's what it is. So this is what lamentations is. Um, it speaks of the wrath of God and the grief of God's people. But then, in Lamentations, there's this note of hope. 
It's saying, despite all these things, something better is coming. So, uh, Tommy, can I have you read Lamentations 3, please? I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. All right, thank you. I split this chapter up into uh, several portions, but um, here there's this note of hopefulness by the, the poet. He's saying, the, the rod of God's anger is upon me, but I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm, I'm going to remember that God is good, that he's patient, that he's loving, that he's faithful, that I can put my hope in him. And then in verse 28, he speaks of this figure. Who is this? Who is it that... Uh, sits alone in silence when it's laid on him. Who is it that's, um, that, that, who gives his cheek to be struck, to be struck? Um, who's the one that's filled with insults? We see this going back to Isaiah where it speaks of the suffering servant, the lamb who did not open its mouth when it's led to the slaughter. It speaks of, we have here in Mark 14, when the high priest asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What did Jesus do? He remained silent. How is it that this, this poet can have such hope in the midst of all his grief, in the midst of it being pressed of this of God's anger being pressed down on him. There's someone in this passage that it points to. There's someone who's gonna be filled with insults, who's gonna be filled who's gonna have his cheeks struck. And this is where the hope of lamentation comes from. Despite Israel all your sins, there's someone else that's gonna take the punishment that you deserve. Okay? Um, let's go to Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is mainly uh, about God's presence with his people. So um, the, Ezekiel was a prophet to the exiles in Babylon. And this book is, if you read it, there's all this really strange imagery. There's It talks about these spinning wheels of fire. And it talks about this creature with four four heads or four faces. And um, like it's it's basically, I think, when it gives us these really vivid images, if you read through it, I think what it's saying is, He's basically saying, I can't describe what I'm seeing. I, this is just crazy to me. Um, but what these visions do that Ezekiel gives is they convey God's holiness and his glory and his sovereignty. And um, for Ezekiel himself, he was a... Uh, he, he referred to himself as the son of man. And the son of man, who else in the Bible refers to himself as the son of man? Any guesses? Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And whenever this term, the Son of Man, is used in the Bible, it's always in connection to humiliation and suffering and and um, and punishment and insults. So Ezekiel, he's playing this part of this, of this prophet who is trying to speak God's word to his people, and he's always present, he's always insulted. And um, he's speaking to Israel and Judah, he's saying, like, Israel, this is going to happen to you. But what's really funny about Ezekiel is this prophet, everything that is going to happen to Israel and Judah, he, he, he takes it upon himself to enact this punishment. So, for example, um, he, this, is, uh, this is really strange. 
he laid on his left side for 390 days, and then he laid on his right side for 40 days. Just can you imagine just lying in one place for like more than a year? And um, this was to symbolize a punishment that would fall on Israel and Judah, respectively. And then um, something else he did is he would just he would eat rationed portions of food. Just he would starve basically because this was to symbolize the impending judgments, this famine that's going to come on. Um, God's people. Another thing he did was he uh, he shaved his head and his beard, and he he took one third of his of his bodily hair, and he he, um, th- he buried it in the ground in the city, and then another third of of his hair he he struck it with a sword. So I don't know how that looks, but he's just like <laughs> I don't know what he did. Struck it with a sword, and another one he just the the rest of his hair he he just threw into the wind to to symbolize what was going to happen to to Israel and Judah, and this was to tell them, hey, look. This is what's going to happen. A third of you guys are going to die from disease. A third of you guys are going to be killed in war. And a third of you guys are going to be scattered into the wind, pursued by violence. And he acted all this stuff out. And he calls himself the son of man. It's kind of interesting that the punishment is is put upon Ezekiel himself. Who else did that in the Bible? The other son of man who took on the punishment that was supposed to be for God's people. He took it on himself. So we see in Ezekiel, there's a ton of parallels in the New Testament. So um, if, if we look at Ezekiel versus uh, the book of Revelation, John was a guy who also saw these visions that he could not describe. And John is talking explicitly about Jesus. Ezekiel speaks of Jesus kind of with a muted, with some, like, a, like a muted trumpet. You can't fully hear it, but you say, he's speaking about something here, and I know it's something crazy. But um, so... Uh, so Ezekiel is a precursor to the true Son of Man. Jesus is the true and better Ezekiel. Jesus is is um, he considers himself a prophet. So Ezekiel the prophet. So um, we're going to talk about the Temple of God. I'm going to we'll kind of rush through this. I, I don't want to get you guys out too late. But Ezekiel 11. Karen, can I have you read Ezekiel 11? Please? Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said. Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me. I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put with them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. All right, so Israel, they had, because they were so sinful, God said, uh, I'm going to remove myself from the temple, which is devastating. Which is devastating because God, the people of God were always marked by God's presence in their midst. And God says, you guys have messed up so bad that I'm going to remove my presence from you. But then God says, um, check this out guys, I'm going to do something else for you. And Karen read this. um, Ezekiel is saying, God, this is terrible. Um, Can anything be done? And he makes his promise to Ezekiel, I'll give them a new heart. Okay, so we're talking about God's presence being removed. Uh, Ezekiel 47 can I have you read this, please? Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. 
Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them grows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Alright, thank you. So, God is saying here, He's saying, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and I am going to whatever it's you may not see in your lifetime Israelites but then the temple is going to be rebuilt and then it this um, this is there's a parallel to revelation in this passage where if you guys remember there is a new temple that's going to be built and the temple again signifies the presence of God so Ezekiel is saying Israelites even though you've messed up God is faithful to his promises a new temple will be rebuilt, and the temple always signifies the presence of God with his people. And also, Jesus, he says, he, he refers to himself as well. This, the fact that Jesus is here um, in, in, in the flesh, um, in, in Jerusalem, he's saying, if we, if we look through the, through the Gospels, Jesus is dwelling with his people. He's um, tabernacling with his people. Um, God is always going to be present with his people. And we see here in Revelation 22... Thank you. So, do you guys see the parallels here in Ezekiel and, and Revelation? It's pretty awesome, right? Pretty awesome. <clears throat> so, um, Ezekiel uh, he he speaks of of this um, creator temple, and then um, here's where I talk about the the uh, future, the near future, and the far future that I mentioned at the beginning of the lesson. So, Ezekiel here, there was eventually a temple that was built by first by Zerubbabel and then by Herod. But then the temple that Ezekiel describes in the, at the end of his, of his book, um, it's not the same temple that was built by human hands. Um, they, the measurements weren't the same. It wasn't as grand or as great as what Ezekiel said it would be. So um, this is kind of the theme that runs through all these prophetic books. Is It speaks of Israel's immediate future, but it ultimately speaks of the future of all of God's people. So the, everything that we see in the Old Testament books always points to the future, um, to Revelation and beyond, when there's this day of the Lord coming, which is God, Him bringing salvation to His people and judgment on those who rebel against Him. Alright? So, um, let me finish off uh, Revelation. Daniel, let me see if I can do this in 90 seconds. <coughs> it's um, about the, the deliverance of the faithful, and the, but it's about the providence of God. And um, Daniel was this, was this paragon of godliness and faithfulness, and he went against the king's orders, and he turned out he was able to do things that the king's uh, magicians and his his astrologists and whatever else he had. Um, he wanted things to be done. None of them were able to do things as well as Daniel. And Daniel, because he he was faithful, um, because he he was good at his job, he was brought up in the ranks in in the king's uh, in, in the king's uh, leadership. And it's kind of cool because he's working amongst all these pagans, Daniel. And um, we, we think, you know, like, if I were to be a good Christian, I should hang around all Christians all the time. Here, Daniel is um, working amongst all these pagans who hate his own God, but here he is doing his, a good job at it. But he 
he suffers punishment for standing up against these other people. So the first thing is he's supposed to bow down to this image of King Nebuchadnezzar. What does he do? He doesn't do it. He's thrown into a fiery furnace. And um, it says that there are, that, that there's him and his friends who don't, who don't, uh, don't bow down to the image. They're thrown into the image, into the furnace. But what happens? There's, there's, when people look at it, they're like, they're still alive in the furnace. And we've never had the furnace this hot. And they're still alive. They're still walking around. And what else do we see in there? There's another person in there that we didn't put inside. And here's an image of someone standing in the fire. Any guesses as to who this might be? There's a common Jesus. answer, which is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is in the book of Daniel. It's awesome. And then Daniel, again, he, he doesn't bow down. He, he prays to his own God against the king's orders. And then he's thrown into the lion's den. And um, But he still comes out alive. It's And the point of this book, Daniel, is to show that God will always deliver his people. There may be a day when we will suffer and be martyred for our faith. But God says, don't worry about that because I will rescue you in the end. And here's his promise here, pointing again to the uh, Davidic covenants. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds in heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages. Here we have again this theme of all nations should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. A recitation of the Davidic covenant. So we see in the major prophets, God is always faithful to his covenant. He's saying, no matter what you do, no matter what the kings do, no matter what these foreign enemies do, I am faithful to my promise, and I am going to fulfill all this stuff. So that's, a, that's, that's the, um, that, that's the uh, story of the prophets in a nutshell. All right? Questions, comments? All right, let us pray. Father God, we're so grateful that you speak to us, and we're thankful that Jesus Jesus is in every single one of the books of the Bible, God. And we're thankful that you rescue us through him, and um, yeah, cause our hearts to expand because of that. And we ask that you would work in your people as we worship you in the next building uh, right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.